this week and got rid of my crutches, which was good. Uh, but I'm still a bit wibbly wobbly, so I decided I'm still going to sit down up here. I mean, I guess the options were, I guess I could preach shorter to make sure I could stand for the whole thing, or I could sit down, so I decided I would go ahead and sit down. That would just make things better for everybody. Um, we're going to continue in our Gospel of John today. We're going to be in chapter 4, but before we go there, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather to study your word. We ask you, Lord, to open our hearts and minds to receive it. Help us, Father, to, to be willing vessels, that our hearts be surrendered to you. Let your spirit just clear away anything that we may have brought in to lay it aside that we can be totally focused upon your word. Help us, God, to just take it and apply it to our lives to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to be a, a, just someone that you would use to accomplish your will in our lives today. Be glorified in all things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now to start, I want us to, to play pretend for a few minutes this morning. Uh, you remember playing pretend when you were a kid, right? Let's pretend we had this. Let's pretend we had that. So I want you to play pretend. Let, let's play pretend that you're a parent of small children. Hey, well, not necessarily small, maybe teenagers. And that as you're going to work this week on spring break, and kids are home, you give them a, a list of chores that they're supposed to do. And it's not a big list. It's not an overwhelming list. But it is a list of things that they are supposed to do. And they're supposed to have a certain amount of them done by the time you get home that afternoon. And you come in that day, and the first thing you notice is nothing has actually been done. So you call your children in, and you ask, what's going on? And they have a big smile on their face, and they tell you, oh, I heard everything you said to me this morning before you left. In fact, I wrote it down. I have the list that you gave me, and I've memorized it. Listen. And they cover up the list and they tell you everything that, that you told them to do. See, I memorized it. And they said, and I put it on Facebook so everybody would know what I was supposed to do. It was on Facebook and everybody saw. And tonight, my friends are coming over and we're going to gather in my room and we're going to study over the list of things that you gave us to do. Now, would they have actually done what you said? Would that have been enough for you? Probably not. And I tell you this story because I can't help but think and wonder if we as Christians haven't done something similar with God. God has given us His Word. And in His Word, there are things that we are supposed to do. And one of the things that we're supposed to do is to make disciples of all nations. Let me remind you of a couple of passages that show this. Towards the end of Matthew Jesus, what we call the Great Commission, he says, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. The Apostle Paul would later write, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and, now this is important, has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now obviously, these commands are for, well, first, obviously these, these are commands. Uh, these aren't suggestions. 
We are called to go and make disciples of all nations. We are given a ministry of reconciliation. We are supposed to help people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. And these commands are given to all people, not just a specific group of believers, but all believers are called to do this. And we know what it says. But the question is, are we doing the things that we know we're supposed to do? Are we involved in evangelism or do we just know what the Bible says about evangelism? I think for most of us, if we were to go around and say, did you know that as a believer you were supposed to share the gospel, to help people come to know Jesus Christ and try to make disciples of all nations? Unless you have only been saved a week or two, you would answer yes. You know what the Bible says. And I think I don't think we're hesitant to be involved in evangelism because we're lazy. I don't think we're a lazy people. I think we just don't really know how to do it. I mean, we we don't know how to talk to people about Jesus, how to get the conversation going in the direction where we can bring Jesus up and, and not feel like we're forcing ourselves on them. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at, at Jesus. In John chapter 4, and it's on page 811 where we're starting in the Pew Bibles, we have a, a story, and it's a long story, of Jesus evangelizing a woman at a well. And in this story, Jesus sets an example for us to follow. He, he kind of gives us a model for evangelism, and that's the title of the message, A Model for evangelism. And as we look at this story, we're going to see some principles that will help us in our personal evangelism and so that we can be active and involved. Now, we're going to look at the first 42 verses of chapter 4, so I am not going to read all of that to you and then come back. We're just going to dive right in. And this is a familiar story, and it does teach us a lot about how to do personal evangelism. And what's great about the story is that it's Jesus doing it. So this is, this is the perfect example. Uh, this is the way Jesus did it is a way that we ought to do it. And so kind of, I, I wrestled with the main idea for the message, but the main thought is that Jesus gives us timeless principles for evangelism. Right? Jesus gives us timeless principles for personal evangelism. What we see here. We may do it a little bit different. There may be something slightly different. But the basic principles of what we learn in this chapter, they are just as effective today as they were then. They, they work just as well today as they did then. Jesus gives us a timeless example that we can follow in our day-to-day lives. And there's three principles that I want to show you this morning. Number one, actively look for opportunities. Actively look for opportunities. Now, if you were here last week, I mentioned that the Great Commission, Matthew 28, that if you were like me, you were always taught that the main thrust of the Great Commission is go. Right? Go was first, everything else was incidental. But that in reality, the main thrust of Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is make disciples. And that go is a supporting command of that. And in fact, it could be, it could be translated as as you're going. As you're going through life, Look for opportunities to make disciples of all nations. Right? That's what we see here. That is exactly what we see happening in this. Right? It says in verse 1, The Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than not in John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. 
And he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground which Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came and drew water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Right, now, here's what I like. Now, obviously, verse 4 is important. He needed to go through Samaria. I think Jesus went intentionally into this area. Jesus is omniscient. He knew all things. He knew she would be at this well at this time. However, the example we see from this is not so much Jesus setting a schedule and saying, at 3 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, I'm going to go and knock a door. Instead, we see Jesus going from one place to another. He's, in the, he's kind of in between ministry locations. He's going from one place to another. He's tired. He stops to get a drink. Later, we're going to see that the disciples actually have gone into the town to get some food. And while Jesus is there, as he's going, this woman comes up and Jesus begins to take this opportunity to talk to her about her need for him. That's the example. Now, here's some things that are interesting about this. Had the disciples been with Jesus, chances are they would not have given this woman a second look. They would have avoided her for two reasons. One, she was a Samaritan. Sunday school this morning we talked about this. The Jews hated Samaritans. Jews did not talk to Samaritans. In fact, um, one of the things I read said that if a Samaritan touched something, a Jew would never touch it again. That's how much they despised them. Right? They, they did not care for them. Secondly, because she was a woman. And Jewish men did not talk to women who were not a part of their family. That's not something that they would have done. But Jesus, in, in, one, in one great act of defiance against the societal norms of the day, he reaches out and he begins to talk to a Samaritan woman. He didn't care that she wasn't a Jew. didn't care she was a woman. He cared that she was a soul that would spend eternity somewhere. That's what mattered to him. Right? He was soul conscious. And if there is anything we should all want to be, it is soul conscious. Because every person is a soul that will spend eternity somewhere. Now that is an attitude that we, we need to learn and embrace on our own. Today, you're going to go about our various tasks. You may go to Walmart. And the people you encounter at Walmart are souls. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. The cashier at Walmart has a soul. She will spend eternity somewhere. The waiter or waitress at a restaurant that you go to has a soul. She'll spend eternity somewhere. Your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends... Just the incidental people you will meet in your life are all souls. And they will all spend eternity somewhere. And as we go through life, there will be opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. So I I don't think we ought to force the conversation. And we're going to talk about how to guide the conversation in a minute. And I'm not saying... Go out to eat today and stand up on your table with your Bible. I don't think you ought to do that at all. I do, however, think that if we're conscious of the fact that they're souls, and if we care about where they go, opportunities will arise as we go through our life. 
I think our job is to actively look for those opportunities. I'm reminded of a story. A pastor took his family and he went to the beach and he was staying with his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law told his kids who were young, hey, let's go to the beach and find shark teeth. The pastor was pretty upset. He said they were excited, man. They couldn't wait to go look for shark teeth. But he knew there weren't any out there. He had been on the beach the day before and he didn't see a one. When they came back, they all had several. And he said the difference between them finding shark teeth and me not seeing them was they were looking for them. I think the difference between those who are able to work Jesus into regular conversations and those who aren't isn't that the opportunities aren't there for us. The difference is some are looking, some are not. As we go through life, actively look for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. Secondly, strike up a conversation. Strike up a conversation. In our day, there are a lot of books and ideas about evangelism. that say all kinds of good things. And a lot of what they want to convince us of is that we can be faithful witnesses about the gospel without ever verbally sharing the gospel. Right? You, you hear this in statements like, share the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Books will be about friendship evangelism and lifestyle evangelism. And the ideas are very similar. And the idea is that if we live in such a way, people will see Christ in us. And it will help them come to know Jesus Christ, to see their need for Jesus. Now, there is some truth to this. The way we live our life, it certainly matters regarding, uh, in regarding sharing the gospel. But it is important to understand that no one will ever be saved because they see the way we live our lives. No one ever sees our lives and says, I need Jesus. In order to believe in Jesus, they must first hear about Jesus. And in order to hear about Jesus, someone has to tell them about Jesus. The passage I read at the start of service said that faith comes by hearing. Hearing, not seeing, hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. Now here is how lifestyle works. Lifestyle evangelism works in that our life commends our words. But the way that we live our lives, it demonstrates the truthfulness of the words that we say. Do we, do we live in such a way that when we tell them Jesus is the best thing ever, they say, obviously, He is to you. Friendship evangelism works in the way that it gives us more opportunities. I've said before, if someone just comes to my door and begins to talk to me, and I don't care really who it is, politicians come to the door and want me to vote for them. Odds are I'm not voting for them if they come to my house. I don't want them to come to my house. Particularly if I already know they have a different political view than I do. Right? If they're of a different party than I am, I'm probably not going to give them a lot of time. But if a friend of mine comes to me and says, I want you to consider voting this way on this particular issue or voting for this candidate, I may not agree and do it. But because of my relationship with them, I'll probably listen. That's how lifestyle and friendship works in evangelism. But on their own, 
They are insufficient to help people come to know their need for Jesus Christ. If we are going to faithfully share the gospel, at some point, words must come out of our mouth. At some point, we must talk to them about Jesus. Words actually have to be spoken at some point. That's what Jesus did. He struck up a conversation with her. And I think we we know that. And we want to be better at that. So how can we be better at striking up a conversation and and helping the conversation get to spiritual things? I want to give you an acronym. And if you've got a bulletin, it's in the back. It's called RCCR. I tried to find a way to come up with a cool word that would spell it out with that, but I'm not that smart, so I couldn't do it. But RCCR, here's what it stands for. And we'll go through it quickly to tell you what they are, and then we'll go through them one at a time. Relate to the person, create an opportunity to share the gospel, convict with the law, reveal the gospel. That's what Jesus did here. Jesus did this thing here. First, relate to the person. Look at verse 7. The woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Notice what he did. Right? Jesus related to the person. He, he started on the natural rather than the spiritual. He, he talked to her about something that she was already aware of. That in the desert, it's hot and people need something to drink. She, he started in a very natural way. Started with the natural stuff. And then eventually he was going to transition to the spiritual stuff. This was what we can do. You know, an easy first step in evangelism. It's just learning to start a conversation with people. Ray Comfort, evangelist Ray Comfort, says the number one key to evangelism is just be nice. Just be nice. Right? Just start a conversation. Right? And I think we can, I think we can even practice this. Right? Start with your family. Right? Just walking around with your family, strike up a conversation about random things. Talk about the weather. Talk about March Madness. Talk about the Olympics. Don't talk about politics and then try to transition into the Bible unless you tell them you go to the First Baptist Church. And if you're going to, but other than that, don't. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but don't do that. That's not going to go well. Start with something natural and then transition to the spiritual. Right? And after you've kind of got the hang of starting a conversation like that with your family, then begin to try it with other people. Right? Begin to... I, I, listen, there's nothing wrong with taking something like this slowly. Not everybody is going to be able to just walk up to random people and strike up a conversation right away. But I think we could all do it if we started slow and began to build up to it. And I think relating to the people as a start starting in the natural is important. Right? Because if someone just walked up to you and, and you're a Christian, Someone just walks up to you and says, I want to talk to you about Jesus, and you don't know them. What is the first thought that goes to your mind? Right? Now, if you said weirdo, you're a lot like me. If someone knocks on my door and says, excuse me, sir, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ and eternal damnation and salvation today. I'm thinking cult leader. I am not thinking committed Christian cares about my soul, concern for me. But if the conversation were to gradually start that way, start normal and go there, it might be different. Right, so start in the natural. Let them know that you're friendly. 
Let them know that you're not a weirdo. Let them know that you're not a cult member or a cult leader. And as you, I mean, even at first, never transition at first from natural to spiritual. Just stay starting spiritual conversations. Just start with doing small talk with strangers in line. How are you today? Well, it was your Wendy. Just random conversations. And as you get comfortable doing that, then transition from going from the natural to the spiritual. And that leads us to the C, the first C. First you relate to the person. Then you create an opportunity to share the gospel. Again, this is what we see with Jesus. Look at what he does in verse 10. She said, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give will become for him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. But there is a, an intentional shift in the conversation. Let me have a drink of water. I can give you something better than physical water. I can give you living water. He, he took the fact that the conversation was started and he then began to step over into spiritual things for the express purpose of evangelizing her. I mean, listen, this was his goal. Jesus' goal in this was to help her believe in Him as the Christ, the Messiah. He wanted her to be saved. That was the point of all He was doing here. Don't be ashamed of starting a conversation with the goal of helping them come to know Jesus. That is the best thing you can ever do for someone. Do not let the world make you ashamed of trying to reach them for Jesus Christ. So Jesus starts the conversation, and then he instantly begins to transition from the natural to the spiritual. He creates an opportunity to share the gospel. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is a difficult step. And if you're an outgoing person, it may not be as difficult for you as it is for some other people. But if you're shy or you're introverted, just saying, hey, how's the weather is going to be difficult. This is going to be very difficult as well. But it is a, a necessary step. Now, there are all kinds of ways that we can do it. There are any number of ways. Let me give you just some questions right, that I have picked up in reading books on evangelism through the years on how you can do it. Right? You can ask something like this. Do you have any kind of spiritual belief? I mean, that's, that's pretty non-threatening, right? Spiritual belief. That's not even necessarily a Christian thought. You have a spiritual belief. Or, to you, who is Jesus? Again, that's, that's a little more pointed, but it's still not overly threatening. Do you believe in heaven? And you think, well, that's starting to get a little more pointed. And, and it is a little bit, but also keep in mind that statistically, like, uh, like 89, 90% of Americans believe in heaven. So this isn't an overly threatening thought. Do you believe in heaven? Do you know that most people you ask are going to say yes? Now, there will be some that will say no, probably. But by and large, people will say yes. So that's not a threatening thought. Now, if you ask them, do you believe in heaven? 
then a follow-up question might be, do you think you'll go to heaven? Now, if you want to say, do you want to go to heaven when you die, you can. Or just say, do you think you're going to heaven? Right? Pretty simple question. Do you believe in heaven? Yeah, I believe in Do you think you're going to heaven? Yeah, I probably am. And then this is a responding question that if they say yes, then say, well, why? Why are you going, why, why are you going to go to heaven? Why would God let you in? Something like that. Because what we're wanting to do is find out what do they believe. Yes, they have a spiritual belief. Yes, they believe in heaven. Yes, they think they're going there. Well, that still doesn't narrow down the field of Christian and non-Christian. Why, are you, why, why would you go to heaven? Why would God let you in? Well, the answer we want is that Jesus Christ has saved me or something along those lines. But if it's, I'm a good person, I go to church, I've been baptized, something like that, then obviously there's, they're not Christian. So you can ask another question, a follow-up question. If what you believe were not true, would you want to know the truth? Now, this, I think, is a great question, right? Because we're getting permission, right? And you can even do this to you. Who is Jesus? I think he was a good man. Well, if what you believe was not true, would you want to know the truth? Do you believe in heaven? Yeah, I believe in heaven. Do you think you're going to heaven? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Oh, I'm a really good person. I've been kind to people. I love animals and I work hard at my job. Well, if what you believe is not true, would you want to know the truth? And then they're going to say yes or no. And if they say no, here's what you do. Okay, thank you. You don't force it. We don't want to force anyone to do anything. Right? This isn't about getting someone in our car and locking the door and making them have that conversation. This isn't making our waitress uncomfortable where the only option she has are being rude to us or having to sit through something she doesn't want to deal with. Nothing like that. It's all permission-based. If what you believe is not true, would you want to know the truth? If they say no, just say, okay, thank you. Now, here's what I'll, I'll, I'll speculate with you. If you, they say no, and you say, okay, thank you, and don't press it any further, they'll ask you, well, aren't you going to tell me the truth anyway? And you can say, well, no, you said you didn't want to know, and I don't want to pressure you or anything. Many times they'll say, well, okay, I do want to know, go ahead and tell me. Let's say I didn't want to know, go ahead and tell me. But we're always getting permission. Never forcing. Never, never force anyone. If they say yes, they've given you permission to take it to the next level, to begin to talk to them about Jesus. Right? And there's other things. You can ask them about church. Do you go to church? Do you know of a good church in this area? You can hand them a gospel tract and say, hey, have you received one of these? You can, you can do any number of other things. The key is that you start in the natural realm and then you transition from that to the spiritual realm. You're, you're creating an opportunity and you're gaining or you're trying to get permission to talk to them about Jesus. So you relate to the person. You do what you can to create an opportunity to share the gospel and that leads to the next seat. You convict with the law. Now, one of the things that's important to notice here is that Jesus dealt with a woman about her sin. Look at verse 14, or verse 15, I'm sorry. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. 
And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now live is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. He, Jesus didn't gloss over her sin. Again, contrary to what our culture tells us. Jesus didn't just tell her, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. She was living in active, willful sin. She was violating the commandment of God against adultery. And Jesus dealt with her about that. Now, he dealt with her gently. And he didn't call her a harlot. And he didn't tell her, you're going to hell. But he did deal with her about his sin. About her sin. And this is a critically important part of sharing the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. But before there is good news, there has to be bad news. Because it is the bad news that makes the good news good. Now imagine. Imagine it this way. Tomorrow, somebody knocks at your door that you do not know. And they come to you and they tell you that you have the Santarin disease. And that you're going to die from it. But don't fret. They've sold their house. And they've sold their car. And they've cashed in their 401k. And they've bought you the cure. What's your thoughts about this person? Hooray! Or do you think weirdo? It's a safe place. You can think weirdo. It's okay. All right? That's what we would all think. But what if they said, I need to talk to you about something. And they began to describe to you a terrible illness called the Santarin disease. And how it was always fatal, 100% of the time. And then they began to not just tell you that it was bad, but began to show you things in your life that demonstrated you had it. They showed you very real visible symptoms in your life that showed you you had the disease. And it was always fatal. And now they told you, but don't worry, I have the cure. Would, the good, would it be good news now? Sure it would. Sure it would. In a similar way, before people understand their need for Jesus, they have to understand their need for Jesus. It is not legitimate to go to someone and say, you need Jesus to save you. Why? Well, you need your sins forgiven. What sins? At some point, to accurately share the gospel with them, you have to share the bad news. And it's not enough to say the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. You have to give them an absolute standard of right and wrong. You have to show them that there is a standard that's not cultural norms. You have to show them that there is a standard that transcends time. That there is an absolute standard for which they will give an account for a holy God. And that is the law. The Ten Commandments. And that's why we want to convict using the law. But again, the way we do it has to be appropriate. Right? You don't just go up to someone and say, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, and you need Jesus. Right? Because how would you respond to that? I mean, just think about it. If someone's critical with you about anything, how do you respond? Someone just comes up and says, you stink at your job, and you ought to be fired. Are you like... You're right, I stink at my job and I should be fired. Or are you instantly mad and thinking, you stink at your job and you ought to be punched in the throat. Right? But if you work it out for yourself, you know what? I do stink at my job. I need to make some changes. 
you're more likely to make changes in the same way. When we talk to them about the law and we begin to share with them about sin, we have to do it in such a way that they work it out on their own. They need to see that they have sinned, not that we have told them they have sinned. They need to understand that they have violated God's law. And so you can transition, right? If what you believe is not true, would you want to know the truth? Yes. Well, would you say that you're a good person? Yeah, because uh, most people believe that, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. And then you ask, well, can I ask you some questions to see if this is true? And again, notice that you're getting permission. You're not just jumping on them with both feet. Would, would you like to know if what you believe is not true? Yes. Would you say you're a good person? Yes. Can I ask you some questions to see if that's true? Yes. If they say no, just say okay. And if they say yes, then you begin to ask. All throughout, we're getting permission. All throughout, we're being invited to have this conversation with them. The most important conversation anyone will ever have with them about their need for salvation. And when we begin to deal with people like this, people don't get defensive. People begin to think. Right? Because it's not we're telling them they're dirty, rotten sinners. They're beginning to see on their own that they have sinned. They're beginning to see on their own that they have violated God's law. And then they begin to think about the wages of sin is death all on their own. That's not me. Um, now, Ray Comfort, who is probably the evangelist I like best, he gives an order that he uses to go through the Ten Commandments. Right? And I'm sorry there's not space on the back of the bulletin to go through them. If you're looking for the Ten Commandments, they're in Exodus 20. Um, and he starts with the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so he'll ask, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? Yeah, I have. Okay. Now, Ray does it in a different way than I, I'm not sure I, I have ever done it that way. Ray says, have you ever told a lie? Yes. What does that make you? And if they say a sinner, he wants them to be specific. A, well, if I told you a lie, what would you call me? A liar. Okay. Right? Because he, and again, he's not saying, he doesn't say, well, then you're a liar. He's trying to draw it out of them. Out of them. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours, time or property? And it doesn't matter how big or how small it was. Yeah. What does that make you? And people will protest, well, I'm not a thief. Well, if I took something from you, what would you call me? Oh, okay. And then he works his way from the ninth to the eighth to the seventh. You shall not commit adultery. Have you ever been sexually immoral, had immoral, sexually immoral thoughts? Yeah. What's that make you? Eh. And a lot of times they don't know the answer to that one if they haven't been sexually immoral. They just had thoughts. He said, well, that's an adulterate heart. Third commandment. Shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Have you ever used the name of God as a curse word or without respect? That's called blasphemy. God says that that's a, that's a pretty serious deal. That's using the name of God as a filth word. Imagine someone used your wife's name as a curse word. How would you feel about that? Ooh, yeah, that's pretty bad. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Have you ever hated another person or called someone a fool to hurt his or her feelings? And he goes on. First commandment, shall I have no other gods before me? Has anything or anyone ever been more important to you than God? Second commandment, shall not make a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on earth beneath that is in the water or under the earth. Have you ever worshipped anyone or anything other than God? Fifth commandment. 
honor your father and mother. The days of your li- that the days, that your days may be long upon the land the Lord your God is giving you. Have you ever disobeyed your parents or failed to honor your parents? Tenth commandment. Shall not covet your neighbor's house. On on covet neighbor's wife, servant, ox, donkey. Have you ever been greedy or wanted anything that belonged to someone else? And finishes up with the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Have your work or hobbies ever been more important to you than taking time to rest and spend time with God? And again, you're never just telling them what they've done wrong. You're asking them a question and letting them answer the question. And you don't argue with them about it. Because again, most people are going to be honest with you at this point. Yeah, I have. Now we know that the law was not given to make men righteous. The law was given to stop our mouths so that everyone would see that they are guilty and condemned before God. That's what Romans 3.19-21 says. And as we begin to talk about this, this is what we should begin to see in them. That the person should begin to, to begin to feel the weight of their sin. That they should begin... To, there's, there's conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. We're not convicting them. We're not condemning them. We're asking questions and they're answering the questions. And the Holy Spirit is working through the Word of God in their lives to bring them to the place where they understand their need for Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's what we want. They need to be convicted. We want God to convict them and not us. And so we, you may ask, okay, you've admitted, right? by your own admission, you have violated, and you may, you know, may not have to go through all ten, two or three. By your own admission, you've broken the standards of God. You've lied. You've stolen. You've hated someone in your heart. Someday you're going to have to stand before God and give an account. Are you going to be innocent or guilty? Right? Well, okay, then now back to the question I asked you earlier. Are you going to go to, go to heaven? Right. And listen, this is, this is tough. This is, these are thoughts they need to think. These are things they need to work through. And, and if they say, right? Because chances are, if they're going to be honest, they're going to say, well, I guess I am guilty. No, I don't guess I would go to heaven. And again, you ask, well, does that concern you? Are you worried about that? Now, how they respond depends on what we do from that point on. Because if they don't care, nah, I don't care. I'm not worried. We can't force anything. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Give what's holy to the dogs. And if someone is proud, doesn't, I don't need Jesus, I'm going to be okay, me and my friends will have a party in hell, nothing you're going to say at that point is going to change anything. Don't try to argue it up with them. Don't, don't waste your time. I think a good rule to follow is law to the proud and grace to the humble. But the Word of God, the law of God, should humble people to recognize their need for Jesus. If they've recognized their need, well, then we proceed. But if they're still proud and puffed up and talking about how good they are and how everything's going to be okay, all you can do at that point is just kind of leave them with the thoughts you gave them and move on. Don't share the gospel. Don't push beyond that point. But if you can see that they're convicted and begin to be broken, and they say that, yeah, it... That is a concerning thought that I'm guilty before God and I, I might not go to heaven. And that leads to the, to the R, the last R. Then you reveal the gospel. And this is what Jesus does, verses 25 to 26. 
He said, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I notice up to this point, he has not told her he was the promised Messiah. He has not revealed the good news of who he is yet. But because she is humbled over her sin, he then reveals the gospel to her and tells her he is the Messiah that they have all been waiting for. So from this point, you begin to share the gospel. And you've sinned and you're guilty. God's provided a way. He has made a way that your sins can be forgiven. He has made a way that your guilt can be taken away. See, God loved you so much. He did not want you to suffer His wrath. He did not want you to live separated from Him in this life and in the next. And so, He came up with a plan that involved sending His Son to live a perfect life on the earth, die a sacrificial death on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus wasn't dying a martyr's death. On the cross, Jesus hadn't hacked off the wrong people. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that our sins deserved. On the cross, Jesus took the wages that our sins deserved. And then he, he died. But He didn't stay dead. In three days, He rose from the grave. Never dying again. Ever living to make intercession for us. Willing to save all and forgive all and give eternal life to all who will believe on Him and call upon Him for salvation. And you can go as much as you want into that. If you want to use Bible verses, you do it. Use John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a good verse to use because chances are they're already familiar with it. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His love toward us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what we want to do here is we want to help them, that God offers, help them to understand that God offers freedom from sin. That He offers forgiveness for sin. Complete and total forgiveness. And it doesn't matter how deep the stain of sin runs. It doesn't matter how long and how hard our sin has been. The grace of God is greater by far. And that God does this because He loves us. And that He wants us to be saved. And, and if they understand that, you ask them, do you want, are you ready to surrender your life to Christ? Yeah. And you invite them to pray. And, and I'm not a big fan of like the sinner's prayer. You saying, repeat after me. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. But really, there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. I think it's far better if you tell them, you call out to the Lord and I'll pray for you. Because God is more than able to work through them through their own words. And again, for me, from my perspective as, as Stacy, if I'm just repeating what someone else says, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me personally. But if I know I've talked to God, and if I know that God has responded to that, that's far more significant. Tell Him it doesn't matter what you say. Words aren't nearly as important. You just call out to God and you ask Him to save you. And you ask Him to forgive you and you confess your faith in Jesus. Trusting. The Bible promises whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You, you relate to the person. You start a natural conversation. You then switch to the spiritual. Create an opportunity to share the gospel. You get their permission to move on from there. And then you use the Ten Commandments to show them that they have sinned and that they desperately need Jesus Christ. And then once they have understand their sin and their guilt, you reveal the gospel to them. You 
glorify the Lord. You tell them about the greatness of Jesus Christ and you encourage them to pray and call upon Jesus to save them. And then the third principle. First, actively look for opportunities. Second, you strike up a conversation. And then the final principle is expect hard work and hallelujah work. Expect hard work and hallelujah work. When it comes to evangelism, there are two sides. There's the hard work and there is the hallelujah work. We see that in this passage. Verse 27. At this point, the disciples came back and they marveled that he talked to the woman, yet no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with the woman? Then left her water, went to the city, and said to them, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Do you not say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields that are already white to the harvest. But at this point, it's just been Jesus and the woman. Disciples come back. Conversations broke. She's believed. So she runs in and begins to tell others about Jesus. And then the city the people in the town begin to come out and come to see Jesus. Right? And Jesus tells them in verse 35, look. Right? I mean, I think what he's saying here is look at the harvest. Right? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, if you look at all of these people that are coming. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap uh, for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Right? Jesus says, in life, in evangelism, there's the hard work. Sometimes you have to do the hard work of just sharing the gospel. Nothing seems to come from it. Other times, though, you get to do the hallelujah work of helping those people come to Jesus. He says in verse 38 that he is sending them to do hallelujah work at this point. They're going to reap what someone else has sown. Right? Someone else had already come and done the hard work. Someone else had already come and, and talked to them. Now, who, was the, who were the others? Well, we don't know. It's likely that the disciples of John the Baptist, John preached repentance, the Messiah is coming. It's likely that as they went back from Jerusalem to where they, were, where they originally lived, they stopped off in various towns and began to talk to them. And that seems probable. And let's say it was. We don't know who it was, but others others had. Right? We know that. But here's what others had done. Others had talked to them about the law. And others had told them to believe in the coming Messiah. And others had told them about the need to repent and believe. And others had urged them to turn to God and to get away from their sin and to let go of their idolatry. But others saw no fruit from it. Others just shared what they knew of the gospel, and they went on about their way, and nothing seemed to happen. They did the hard work, what seemed to be a thankless work, what seemed to be a fruitless work. But as the others left, the disciples came, and they got to do the hallelujah work. Look at what it says in verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him, 
to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Now they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said. For we have heard him ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They got to do the hallelujah work. They got to see a big revival break out among the pagans. How great would that have been? Now here's what I'm convinced of. We don't get to do the hallelujah work if we're not willing to do the hard work. Very few people ever share the gospel and everybody they share the gospel with is saved. If you say, I will not share the gospel unless I know they're going to be saved, you will never share the gospel. But if you're willing to do the hallelujah, the hard work, eventually you'll get to do the hallelujah work. I just don't think we get to do one without the other. I think when we do the hard work, God puts us in the place where we need to be so that we get to do the hallelujah work. Let me quickly share with you one of my very favorite verses from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and arise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the full grain of head. Full grain in the head, but when the grain ripens, immediately he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. And in Jesus' story there, the seed is sown and the farmer goes on. And as the farmer goes on, God just basically makes the seed grow until it produces fruit. What he's talking about is the gospel, how the kingdom of God grows. See, there, the power of the gospel is in the gospel. It's not in the person who presents the gospel. As a preacher, I I take this verse and it gives me great encouragement because I remind myself of two things. One, I can't possibly know what all God would do to the seeds that I plant. I I don't know. People here, they don't seem to change. They don't seem to be bothered or convicted. Even particularly stirred at all. what, What will God do later? I don't know. I'm reminded... Several years ago, before I, when I was a youth pastor, me and my pastor went to visit with a guy who was a, he almost died of a drug overdose. He was, at that point, an atheist who hated God and wanted nothing to do with him. But his sister was a member of our church, and she had asked us to go visit with him. And he was a, I mean, have you ever met somebody that you just look at him and you think, that's a, that's a dangerous, violent person? That was him. He was bigger than we were. He was bigger than both of us together. He was, had long hair and a beard and he was loud and, and cursed and I mean when he saw us he knew who we were and he began he didn't, he didn't tone down his rhetoric and his cussing at all and so we, we talked to him and we shared the gospel he told us he didn't believe it that it was all hogwash and, I mean he just cussed us up one side and down another and sent us on our way and we went back another time after he nearly OD'd again and we went and talked to him again this time he wasn't quite as harsh, but he still let us know. He, had, he wanted nothing to do with anything we had to say, and we left. And about two years after we had come up here, my pastor called, and he had nearly OD'd again. And a different pastor had gone to see him and led him to Christ, baptized him. And he was actively involved in a Southern Baptist church in a different community. I mean, that was awesome. Now... He never went to the Fort Gibson church that I know of. I doubt he remembers me. I doubt he remembers Tommy. But we planted seeds. 
And those seeds didn't come along for years. We did the hard work one day. And some other, some other guy got to do the hallelujah work four or five years later. You don't know what the seed you plant today will eventually do. Secondly, it reminds me that the gospel is powerful. And it's not about me. But if every time we shared the gospel, people got saved, guess what we would think? <laughs> Man, I'm awesome. We would be pretty convinced of our own awesomeness. But what seems to be failure to us reminds us, oh yeah, this is a God thing. It's God who saves souls. It's God who changes life. It's God who makes a difference. And so our job, our job isn't to save anyone. Our job is to plant seeds. Our job is to share the gospel. And then we leave it in God's hands. And we trust God to work into their lives. And we trust God to send people to water the seeds we've planted. And we trust God to make the seed grow. And we trust that somebody will get, eventually get to come along and do the hallelujah work in our lives. But we do it knowing that sometime along the way, we're going to get to do the hallelujah life, hallelujah work in someone else's life where someone else has done the hard work. I mean, if you've ever led someone to the Lord, Chances are you weren't the first person to ever talk to them about Jesus. Over time, somebody else had done the hard work. Somebody else had left the gospel in their hearts. Somebody else had done what they could and went on the way. And then you got to come along and just say, Hey, would you like to come to church? And they just said, Oh man, I need Jesus. I mean, one of the, this has only happened to me once in my whole life. A year after we moved here, I went back to the first state meeting. I came here in May. We came here in May. Left in October for the state meeting. Went with Tommy to go visit some folks in the hospital from the church. As we were walking out, a lady was backing out, and she backed and nearly hit us and said, Are you guys preachers? And we said, Yes, we are. And she said, I want to know how to be saved. I know that I've separated from Jesus, and I need to be saved. Can you show me how to be saved? <laughs> we got through the easiest hallelujah work in the world. We didn't even have to share the gospel with her. She was already ripe and ready for the harvest. Now, that doesn't happen often. Somebody else had obviously already talked to her. Somebody else had already planted many seeds and watered it many times in her heart. We just got to come along and harvest it. If we do the hard work, we'll get to do the hallelujah work. It's just a matter of doing the hard work. And so what I want to do is I want to give you some things to do. And these are ideas, right? Because we, we want to be witnesses for Christ. I would think if we're truly saved, we want others to be saved too. If we have experienced the forgiveness and the mercy of God, we want others to do it. They have experienced that as well. And so we want to know how to do it. So what I want to do is I just want to give you three quick things that I think will help you to be more faithful in sharing the gospel. One, pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Just pray. Lord, help me to have opportunities this week to talk to someone about you. I mean, don't you think that's a prayer God wants to answer? I mean, if His will is really that none should perish and all would be saved, and it really is His will that we would all be involved in making disciples of all nations, God will answer that prayer. God will give us the opportunities. But after we pray for the opportunity, look for opportunities to share the gospel. I think, I think for me, not looking is the biggest hindrance to my life. I have had conversations with people at Walmart or at the gym or other places and just been task-oriented. I've got to get in and get out of Walmart because I hate that place. 
I go to the gym and I'm there to work out, not to have a conversation, make friends. Get in and get out. And then after it's all said and done, after I leave, I think back and think, oh, man, there's like three or four good opportunities to transition to spiritual things. But I was so focused on other things. I missed it until it was too late. The difference between those who get the opportunities and those who don't, I really believe, is those who look for the opportunities, see them. So look for the opportunities. And then, finally, courageously take any opportunities God gives you. You may not think, man, how is sharing the gospel an act of courage? If you don't know how sharing the gospel is an act of courage, I bet you've never tried to share the gospel before. Or you are just a naturally outgoing person, in which case I cannot relate to you that well. But if you have struggled to share the gospel and transition from natural things to spiritual things, you know how difficult that is. And it takes courage to make that transition. It takes courage to be faithful with the law. And when they say things like, are you saying I'm going to hell? It takes courage to not try to soften that up and say, well, that's what the Bible says. And when they say, are you saying I, I don't, that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to spend eternity in hell? It takes courage to say, that is what the Bible says. Courageously take every opportunity God gives you. And be courageous. And be faithful. And share the gospel. Too much hangs in the balance for them. For us to be not aware of our surroundings, not willing to be uncomfortable, and not willing to be faithful to show them their desperate need for Jesus. All right, let's stand as our musicians come forward.